Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. My name is Jody. I'm a pastor here. Our senior pastor, Tim Bailey, is up in Indianapolis this morning for the baptism of one of his grandchildren. And he will be back in a couple of Sundays, and we will be resuming our regular series in the book of Romans. So I'll be preaching to you today. Pastor Jürgen von Hagen, who was up here a little bit ago, will be preaching next Sunday, Lord willing, and then Tim will be back in the pulpit. Our Bible text this morning is 1 John 3, 1 to 3. And if you have a Bible, would you please turn there? And as you're turning there, I want to say a few words about what a Christian is. What is a Christian? The Bible defines a Christian in a number of different ways. A Christian is described as someone who has believed. Those who had believed were together, says Luke in the book of Acts. Christians are described in Scripture as those who have been rescued, those who have been saved. In hope we have been saved, says Paul. Christians are described elsewhere as those who confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart. So as those who confess, those who believe. Scripture describes them as those who have been born again. Jesus himself said that. Born again, born of the Spirit. Paul says they're new creatures, new creations. Christians are described as having been washed, cleansed, forgiven, even sometimes as those who have been baptized. That's the definition of a Christian given in some places of Scripture. Each of these terms or definitions or descriptions of a Christian are perfectly biblical and very useful to understanding what it is to be a Christian, what God has done in making a Christian. I've been grateful for the reminder in our recent sermons on Romans in chapter 7 of some of the things that a Christian is not. Christian is not, according to Paul in Romans 7, someone who is sinlessly perfect. And that is a comfort, because I can relate to that. A Christian is not someone who is sinfully perfect, but they do recognize within themselves a hatred of sin. That they're able to say, as Paul says, when I disobey, when I, when I sin, I'm doing the very thing that I hate. I hate it. That's a Christian. He sins. When he sins, he's, it's like against a strong desire and impulse and principle within him. He hates it. Paul also says in Romans 7 that a Christian is not someone who conforms perfectly to the law of God. But when he violates God's law, he has this joyful agreement with the law. He concurs with it in his inner man, and he's able to say quickly, yes, I'm wrong. God is right, and, and his, the, the judgments of the Lord are true, and they're righteous altogether, and I repent. I confess it as sin. Those are some of the things a Christian is not. I remember reading in the last few years uh, a short series of sermons by Jeremiah Burroughs, an old dead pastor. He wrote uh, some sermons that have been published in a little book called Gospel Fear. 
And it's, uh, several of the sermons are on a text of Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. And it says, to this one I will look, speaking of God. I'm going to look upon and consider and admire and love this kind of person. And here's what he says. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. And Burroughs, the author, says several times very sweetly, that notice that it's not the person who obeys God's word that he says he will look and consider and love and admire, but the one who trembles at it. And I thought, man, that's sweet. And I'm, I'm convinced that there's many people here that despair of themselves when they examine themselves against the law, but they do find within their hearts a trembling at God's word, a reverence for it, a love of what God says and an agreement with it in their being. Trembling at the word of God, hating our sin, joyfully agreeing with the law of God in our inner being, these are not natural things. We don't come up with these of ourselves. These are supernatural gifts of God purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ imparted into our souls by the Holy Spirit. And they are signs that of, of some amazing and radical change having taken place in us. The nature of that change is so profound, so incredible that it's hard to encompass it in a single term or expression or name. That's why scripture has all kinds of ways of describing what a Christian is, because there's a, <laughs> it's a big thing what God has done for his people when he saves them. There is a term, though, that I think, for me, goes, uh, does a better job than all the rest of en- sort of encompassing all that's great and all that's sweetest about being made a Christian by God. And that's provided for us in this passage from 1 John 3, 1 to 3, which for me is one of the most stirring and awesome passages of Scripture. It's been on my mind for a long time. It was put on my radar by a man who was present when I first got introduced to my now wife. And that was a verse he wrote to me in a card. And so it's been with me for many years, and I've been reminded of it um, during these recent sermons on Romans 7 especially. I just felt like this would be helpful to us today. We're going to read 1 John 3, 1 to 3. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. So John's laying out an argument in this passage, and each part of that argument is just full of the most amazing truth. I wonder at it. It's hard for me to even feel like I can start to do it justice, but at least the logic of the passage is simple. It's it's just sort of clear how it's laid out. John begins by defining what we are in Christ. He says what we are today, now, and he moves on to explain 
what we hope to be in future. And then he says, on the basis of this hope, here's what you do. Here's what people who have this hope, here's what they do. So let's look first of all at what we are. What is a Christian according to John in this passage? Verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. We're called children of God, and we are that, is what John says. We are that really. Now, John's not using children of God in the generic creational sense. Sometimes Scripture does use that expression. Paul, when he was uh, debating and teaching the men in the Areopagus in Athens, a bunch of unbelievers, he says, even your own poets have said that, for we are all his children. So there's a sense in which everyone who's ever lived is a child of the one who made them. And that's a scriptural view. But this is not the view of the author here, John. What John is calling us to look at is something more wonderful, not the wonder of God's creative power in making us out of nothing, but the wonder and the miracle of his recreating us out of worse than nothing. What do I mean worse than nothing? There is a state that is worse than death, and that can be experienced. We can be in that state, in that condition, even as we live. And that is to be dead in trespasses and in sins. To be spiritually dead. To be under the condemnation and wrath of God. That's how we come out of the womb. That's who we are by nature. Children of wrath. God's enemies. And this is, and we would expect, given our nature and who we are, to spend our lives the best we can hope for. And we're generally, if that's us, we're generally even ignorant of it. We don't even know the condemnation that we're under. We don't even know the trouble we're in. But this, this is, we're doomed, as it were, to grope around in the darkness, blinded by our sin and bondage to lust. And that's in this life. And then it's like we're heading for a, a great abyss that we don't even see. And that abyss is an eternity of torment. God pours out his wrath on us for our wickedness, for our disobedience, and for our rebellion. That's, that, is a, that is a fate worse than death. And this is what we would expect to, this is all we can expect in and of ourselves, except for one amazing thing which we have already heard pronounced this morning as our assurance of God's pardon. Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, plucked out of the fire of destruction, saved by Christ, called of God and made a Christian. So there's a difficult but glorious image of what God has done for us that we find in chapter 16 of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's a prophet from the Old Testament. And God was speaking through him, and he said this to his people. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye took, looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, 
Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and I saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. Dead in trespasses and sins, left on a hillside, thrown away like a bunch of garbage, spiritually, morally. And God walks by and says, live. And he doesn't just say, and be, you know, like, like we're warned against being in our lives, to saying to people, be, be warmed and filled and move, moving on. He doesn't say live and then pass on on his way, leaving us to our life. He says live. And what he means is live in my house. Live as my child. Live with full inheritance rights, the same as my beloved and only begotten son, Jesus. These things I give to you. Live under my provision and protection. Be my, be my child. That's what he means when he says live to us. And he also says, and, and we should not forget it, he also says, and, and live in the midst of a whole bunch of other people to whom I've made this commitment. And they're your brothers and your sisters in my house. That's in the church. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. We were his enemies. We were slaves of unrighteousness, children of a different father, of our father the devil. And he picked us up out of the fire of destruction, out of doom. And he transferred us, as it says in Scripture, to the kingdom of his beloved son, to, to his house, and he's made us his children. John's calling us to marvel at what theologians and the Scriptures say is the grace of adoption. We are adopted by the Heavenly Father and made his children. And that's what John is pressing home here. You're a child of God if you believe. It's not that we hope to become children of God someday. We're not striving after that grace. That's not our aim. We have that grace. Our striving flows out of that great and incredible and unbelievable gift to us. We have been made as children. And out of that flows new life, new possibilities, new obedience, new strength for each day. You may look into your heart and into your life and examine your ways and you may think, oh, I am not the child that I wish I could be for the Lord, for my father. You may examine your life and see that there's much disobedience and sin in you and you may despair of yourself and you may say, wretched man that I am. And you may say, I'm not worthy of the least of God's mercies. I can't be a son. I'm not worthy to be called a son. And to that I would say, I hope you do. That very thing, as we've been learning in Romans, is, is a sign that you have been adopted of God and made a true child of him. People who are hypocrites and only pretend to this privilege and this condition and this sonship of God, and also people who reject God entirely or outside of the church and, and have no interest in God, these people don't struggle within themselves like that. 
They don't mourn their sin. They don't humble themselves before God. Generally speaking, they don't, they don't have a habit of despairing of themselves. That very struggle in us is a sign of our sonship, of our, of our relationship of a, as a child to God. We've seen and enjoyed for many years now many examples of human adoption in our church. There are children here, there are even adults here, who have been adopted by human parents. They were born to another family and for any number of reasons needed a new home. And there were men and women here who said, I love you, I claim you, and I you're mine. We will raise you as our own. That's a beautiful picture uh, that, that is here among us that people have blessed us with. This week, we have a, this picture uh, among us uh, afresh in Benny and Katie, who were given a child, assigned a child, and uh, they're adopting her, and her name is Elizabeth Jane, and they're calling her Ilsa, and we're delighted. And part of the reason we're delighted is because it's such a wonderful picture of the love of God, which he has set up, he's poured out on us in, in making us his children when we were of a different family, different tribe, a different people. He claimed to set as his own. As wonderful as the picture is, though, it doesn't fully express the, the wonder and amazement of the fullness of God's adoption. And that's because when God adopts children, he doesn't just claim them as his own in a legal sense. He doesn't just say, oh, I'm committed to you and I love you dearly as my own. He actually makes us his own. He puts himself into us. Our nature is changed. And we not only are called his children, but we become them. We are made them. He regenerates us, gives us new birth in himself. He puts himself into us. Even not, even biological parents and their generation of children, procreation of children, can only impart to their children their fallen natures. Only God can impart his divine nature into fallen man. And that's the real incredible gift and the greatness of his adoption. There are some slight indignities which we suffer as children of God in this world. And they're alluded to here in the second half of verse one. For this reason, the world does not know you or does not know us because it did not know him. They did not recognize Jesus as the son of God as they should. Very few actually acknowledged who he was during his time on earth. And it says here, because of our adoption, because we've been born of, we're now regenerated and we're a part of a new family, it's wonderful and all, but we're also, there's also this indignity of not being recognized as such by the world. But that's, and so we, we, uh, we, we know that and have experienced and can see that there's not a lot of street cred in being a, a, a child of God. That's what I'm trying to say. 
There's a lot of wonder and great things that flow to us as God's children, but it's not coming to us from the world. You may choose to put child of God on your resume as a testimony to a future employer or your, your colleagues, but you don't expect that it's going to get you the job, generally. It may be, and increasingly is the case, that being a Christian, being a child of God, is a detriment to you in a worldly sense. But we can be content because we know we have God's approval. We have Him as our Father. We have His promises, His power at our disposal. We have His protection and His provision in our lives. We can be content. And more than that, we can see that Jesus, there's nothing... There's nothing new about it. Jesus experienced the same uh, misunderstanding, misevaluation um, by people around him in his time here. And we can have hope because, as this passage makes clear, there's more to come. We are children of God today. We have God's, we have all of these blessings of his grace in adoption today, now but we have more to come. There's something to hope for. What is it that we hope for? What does a child of God hope to become someday? Look at verse two. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So what does John say is the ultimate hope of a Christian? You answer me. What does the passage say? What's our ultimate hope? What? To be like Jesus, yeah. To be like him, that's our hope, that's our aim. And that's what's promised here in this passage. When he appears, when we see him as he is, we will be like him. And that's our strong desire. Not equal to him, because he's God and we're not. But we will be like him. How will we be like him? Well, it's interesting that to some degree, We don't know. He says, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. I think that's one of the most evocative uh, and sort of inspiring of my imagination's sentences in Scripture. We don't yet know what we will be. We don't fully comprehend or envision what we will be in glory because we have not yet seen the glorified risen Savior. We've read about him. We have even descriptions of him being glorified, but none of us and very few people who have ever existed to this date have seen him with their eyes. And there seems to be uh, uh, more than can be comprehended or expressed about that. Uh, I felt like I was going out on a limb in the first service by suggesting that the writers of Scripture seem to struggle to express it when they're describing scenes of heaven or scenes of the Lord glorified. And then Adam Spady pointed out to me that Paul says there are things that he heard and experienced when he was caught up to the third heaven that he was not permitted to write. (laughs) So I think there is a sense of struggle to even come up with language that explains the glory of the risen glorified uh, Savior. But there's also things that we cannot or should not, cannot express, even by those who have seen him. It's a secret. There's such power in it that we would be changed. And he's not ready for that. 
We know this, though, we will be like him. And that is an incredible thing to ponder. We will be like him. I'm gonna, we're going to do a little exercise. I'm going to say, Jesus is, and you're going to fill in the blanks with some of the things we do know about him. Some qualities, some characteristics that are taught to us in Scripture about Jesus. And here's an example. Jesus is pure. Now it's your turn. Jesus is... Okay, now you're going to have to do better than that. I can't hear you. You know, shout it out. Jesus is faithful, mighty, awful. Well, he is awesome. That's the old use of the word awful, meant awesome. What did you say? He's humble. He's light. What is Jesus? He's perfect. Holy. He's true. What did you say? He's the way. He is compassionate. He's loving. He's kind. He's good. He's faithful. He's jealous. He's also zealous. He's a shepherd. He's patient. And we could go on and on for the rest of our time. But the amazing thing is, you will be too. I've been thinking this week as we've, a uh, few of us get together and we've been working through a book by Thomas Watson called The Godly Man's Picture. And uh, the chapter we read this week was uh, a godly man is a heavenly man or heavenly minded or something like that. And so and there were lots of meditations that re- related to what God had put on my heart to preach about. And I've, I've just been struck by the fact that I think I don't think properly about heaven and, the, and some of the gl- true glories of it. I do, I, I, and I think, about, I think about as best I can Jesus and his glory. I think about the stuff of heaven a lot. Like that's, those are the images that come to mind when somebody says heaven. I think about streets of gold. I think about the tree of life and the river. And I think about the stuff of heaven, the experience of heaven. But there is a big missing, there has been in my thinking, this big missing component, which I think is huge, and that is glorified you. Glorified me. And what it will be like to look at you and to experience you and God's people completed and glorified. Shining. In, as they reflect the glory of Jesus, like Moses did after 40 days on the mountain and he couldn't even look at him. I think the stuff of heaven is really pales in comparison to the people of heaven. And if you just look to your left and look to your right and you just think, what will it be like to see a glorified lane? I don't, I don't know. But I think it's going to be amazing. And there's something hidden about it now as we contemplate it, that we look at one another and we see in ourselves and we see in one another all kinds of 
faults and weaknesses and frailties, and there's something veiled that a lot of this we take on faith. Here's some of the things that Watson said in that chapter on heavenly mindedness. He said, a saint at present is miserable with a thousand troubles. On that day, in an instant, he will be clothed with robes of immortality and advanced above seraphim. Here, the people of God are clouded with infirmities. We see them with spots on their faces, so spiritual pimples. They are full of pride, passion, which is like anger, censoriousness. In that Jerusalem above, we shall see them in their royal attire, decked with unparalleled beauty, not having the least tincture of shadow or sin on them. My mom passed away this summer, and I've been thinking a lot about that this week, and I realized that I think about mom in heaven, and I think about seeing her, but only now am I starting to imagine her as something different than I've known her here, something far greater than I've ever known her to be. That's what this passage is teaching us. There is a lot more than we can know, but it alludes to it, and we're told to hope for it and expect it. When will these things be? Well, it's hard to be patient for what we hope for, but God has us in a time of waiting, a time of hoping, a time of hoping. This will not happen until the Lord returns, until he appears, until we see him as he is. Paul writes to the Corinthians, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. We want to get zapped, and sometimes I think we have a hard time understanding and accepting that God doesn't just zap us into holiness. Well, there is a zapping that is real and that we can hope for and expect. It's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, we will be changed. But it's not yet. I mentioned earlier that there are indignities that we suffer as being children of God here in this world. The indignity of not being recognized as God's children by, or appreciated by, as God's children by the world, but rather despised. That's an indignity that we suffer as a child of God. And that's okay. He planned it that way. It's good for us. But there's another indignity which we suffer, and that is that we, even though we've had a new nature given to us. We're a new creation by God's spirit, by his power, by his kindness. We still have our flesh very much alive and kicking in us. And we struggle with many sins and many infirmities and many failings. Our flesh gives us a run for our money daily, hourly. And we have to spend a lot of our time apologizing and asking forgiveness and acknowledging that we're foolish and sinful and proud and all kinds of things. And that's hard. 
Do you remember Pastor Bailey? Uh, I don't know if he said it in both services. I was, uh, heard both sermons last week, but he said something, at least in the first service, about overhearing a conversation at Starbucks about two young men talking about their relative state of sanctification to one another. They're just, you know, and one of, he overheard one of them say, yeah, I think I'm probably about 80% sanctified. <laughs> so we all laughed and we all think, but I, I don't know what, hearing that, I don't know what you think, but here was the thought on my mind, what a hopeless, what a hopeless thing to consider. If I or anybody I know is 80% sanctified, there is not much to look forward to. And that's, I mean, that's not a joke. That's true. I love everybody. But that's a really weak hope. I hope I'm not 80% sanctified. It's hard to be patient. It's hard to be humble, humbled. But there's usefulness to it. We have to take a lot of that in faith, but we know that God is doing a work in us even if we can't see it, even if nobody else sees it. We must understand that that in a mysterious way, shrouded in mystery and secrecy, There's this incredible work growing within us that when we see Jesus will come to, will just like a flash, come to be revealed. It will be seen. It will be done. In the meantime, we walk by faith, not by sight. We get up each new day full of new mercies from God and we forget what lies behind and we press on toward the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Little by little, God grows us and shapes us and is chiseling away at us. And when we see Jesus, we will be changed. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, had a good motto that I think we should learn. It's almost like It belongs among our affirmations of faith. The Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the the Heidelberg Catechism question that we recite on a rotating basis. And here's what it is. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am Let's say it together. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And what are you, according to John? A child of God. What do you hope to be? Like Jesus. And that's a real and certain hope, but it's a hope. It's not a reality that we see or enjoy a lot of right now. Last thing, what do we do in keeping with that hope? 
John makes it real clear in the last verse, verse 3. What does a child of God do because he has this hope within him? Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We give ourselves daily to the work of sanctification. We, we, we try again. We restart. We tackle the problem again. We repent again. We give ourselves to the hard, bloody, difficult work of being sanctified, being made holy. Are you purifying yourself as he is pure? Are you pursuing the peace with all all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord? This is how we show that we hope in him. We work every day, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us in order to run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. The sight of Jesus is enough to make us holy. The same provision for our ultimate total sanctification, which we call glorification, is made here and now in his word and in the preaching of his word and in the ministry of the church, it's made available to us to a lesser degree, but to a sufficient degree for a life of growth in godliness. God in his word has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has withheld things. There are great things to come, but we have what we need. And we can fix our eyes on Jesus. All of those qualities that we recited and shouted out about the Lord, we know because they're taught to us in his word. We can look in his word. We can hear it proclaimed in the sermons that who Jesus is, and we can fix the eyes of faith upon him. And it is powerful to change us. That's how we're changed. We look to Jesus. So it's not like we look to ourselves. It's not like we double down, pull up ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder in our own strength. We try harder looking at the powerful thing, the thing that gives us the motivation and the ability to grow and change, and that is Jesus. We fix our eyes on him. So give yourself today, tomorrow, next month, next year, to the work of being of purifying yourself of growing in holiness fix your eyes on Jesus and the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of himself and amen